Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. David Steiner is executive director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy. He's also professor of education at Hopkins, uh, too. He was with us last year to provide an overview of the state of education in America. And after many writings over the years, he has a new book out entitled A Nation at Thought, Restoring Wisdom in America's Schools, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Steiner. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be here. I presume your title echoes the famous A Nation at Risk report, uh, with whose outlook you may not wholly disagree with. uh, But let let me ask a first question about the subtitle. Uh, Why the word wisdom instead of the customary skills, knowledge that we see in, in most education documents? I think because fundamentally I take issue with that as a goal for education itself. The training of skills is important, right? And particularly at the youngest age, we must teach the skill of learning to read, of reading, uh, basic numeracy. But as we move to middle and high school, uh, it seems to me that imposing just a repetition of skills uh, is killing the spirit of learning because we cannot translate the interpretation of a strong text Uh, the wrestling with a mathematical formula, uh, the exploration of a scientific theory with just a set of how-tos, right? Uh, uh, As if they were basic cooking recipes, follow here and you win. Uh, That seems to me an extraordinarily impoverished view of what it means to be educated. Wisdom then, I mean, wisdom certainly presumes some level of skill and, and, and knowledge, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's not, it's in there, right? It's in there, but it becomes like muscle memory, right? So as we become fluent readers, it's not as if each moment that we're reading, uh, we're conscious of exercising a reading skill, right? That's the point of skills, is that they should become background to the cognitive activity that means we're engaging in more sophisticated ways. Yeah. You, you, you begin this book uh, with a, an anecdote of an experience you had in Buffalo while you were serving as the head of education in the state of New York, uh, which required you, you, you traveled around, you observed schools, you, right. you tried to monitor progress and, 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 and pick out practices. Uh, what did you observe on this occasion? Uh, This was a sad moment, perhaps the saddest of my experiences being commissioner in New York. Uh, 
I and my number two, John King, who later became U.S. Secretary of Education, were at a spanking new, beautiful Buffalo City High School. Uh, they'd spent over 30 million on a physical <laughs> plant. And of course, because they knew I grew up in England, they thought, well, we'll give uh, the commissioner exposure to a Shakespeare lesson, right? To, to sort of flatter him as it were. Um, and it was uh, of Hamlet. And the entire lesson took place with not a single reference to the text. <laughs> and by the end, uh, John King and I were so upset that we were millimeters away from standing up and, and beginning to talk about Hamlet, right? Uh, but it did bring home to me the, the limits of what we are now insisting in terms of our standards for ELA instruction, English language arts instruction, where no matter whether you're in third grade or 10th grade, it's still the requirement to find the main idea. Now, if they had just found the main idea in the text, that would have been better than what they did. Hmm. But uh, to say, you know, Hamlet was confused because, and then give a single answer, which is sort of one step up from what we saw in Buffalo, uh, that still strikes me as a, a very, very thin way of thinking about studying the play, right? Um, such skills as find the main idea are appropriate when you are learning to read. Uh, but it doesn't seem to me that they come close to describing what we think of as an educated reader uh, of 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Yeah, this was, this was high school level. This was high school, 11th grade. Right, right, right. You, you speak uh, out of this anecdote and, and then turning to really the necessity of the book. You begin with the contention that there is such a thing as a collective interest in the content of K-12 education, not just workforce readiness, you know, right. college readiness in, in, in terms of the, the skill factor, but actually the content of K-12 education is crucial to all of us. Is this not a general assumption? I think absolutely not. Um, I think, first of all, as you know, there's a powerful movement to privatize education in the sense of allowing public dollars uh, to flow to parents and have them simply select right between private uh, schools. Now, I am all for greater choice. Right. But I'm not for choice if it's between Burger King, McDonald's and Wendy's. <laughs> um, I, I think that most countries and my colleague who's been on uh, with you, Ashley Berners, made this point that most dem democracies fund lots of different kinds of schools, including religious schools, but only if those schools are open to public examination and core curriculum. Right. So uh, there is a general interest in the education level of my neighbor's child, not just mm -hmm. my own, um, and my neighbor's neighbor's child. In other words, there is a sense in which, as Americans, we all share an interest in the educational level of the next generation. They are the ones who will earn for our social security, to put it very bluntly. Um, but more importantly, it talks to us about the nature of the culture that we want to live in the nature of the polity in which we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so it seems to me that lost in this debate between the left and the right, right, only a monopoly of unionized schools, as it were, uh, or an unconstrained um, libertarian free market, uh, we've lost the core, 
which is what do we think an educated American actually is? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, a man you and I both admire and have have worked with before, Edie Hirsch, he says that uh, apart from deciding what the core is to be, it is very important in a democracy that there be some critical mass of common reading, common study. You yes, agree? I agree up to a point. I actually take issue with Edie Hirsch out of deep admiration, let it be said. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving on his board for many years until recently. Um, and there's no question that his insistence on the importance of content knowledge has been crucially important uh, in improving uh, the sense of what we teach, uh, particularly in English language arts and social studies. However, um, Edie Hirsch once wrote that it's fine to get all your knowledge of Romeo and Juliet from Cliff Notes, <laughs> by which he means that in that professional conversation, uh, if you're an underprivileged student and you're trying to break into the professional classes, you don't need to recall the text. You don't need to have the imagery, the metaphors, the symbolism, the language of Shakespeare in your mind, as long as you've got the plot. And to me, that's a fundamentally utilitarian view of education. It's important, but and, and one could say it's even necessary, but it is vastly insufficient. And that's where, with great respect, I differ from Hirsch. Uh, you know, who needs uh, uh, it is the dawn and Juliet is the sun. Uh, for, you know, forget that. Uh, OK, OK. As long as you know that she dies in the end. Right. And so does he. Um, uh, and that their families are unhappy uh, and, uh, you know, that there's some killing involved. Uh, yeah, that's that's all you need. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you turn to actually just first laying out an overview of yeah. academic achievement at the yeah. present time. Your your title indicates the verdict of that next section, quote, the unmet goals of American schooling. Uh, quick capsule, David, where are we now? Very quick. We're dead flat in the water. Uh, we have been for two decades. Our math and uh, reading scores are exactly where they were 20 years ago, give or take a point. Yes, we are educating more uh, first uh, language speakers of Spanish. Uh, and that has to be taken into account. Um, on the other hand, we are spending in real dollars ever more uh, on education. Uh, and in fact, the poverty levels are somewhat lower that most people don't realize that because we do have a bifurcation in this country of economic well-being. Um, so there really isn't an excuse. Uh, and we are dead in the water. And meanwhile, our GPAs and graduation rates from high school are soaring. Uh, which simply means that we're lying to ourselves, right? It, it means that what used to be considered failure is now given uh, to be success. I, I was going to say, wait a minute, grades are going up. They're learning more. Uh, come on. Come on. <laughs> but you, you, uh, another, another thing, actually, we, we mentioned a moment ago, the career, career readiness. You speak of that. Yeah. And it, you know, I don't remember that term or idea when I was a student in, in high school in right. the 1980s. 70s. When and, and maybe why did this factor come into play so strongly in, in education reform? It was one of the primary uh, elements of Common Core, for instance. That's right. No, you ask a really important question. We've discovered as a country that there is a vast percentage of our fellow citizens aged 
just to pick a number between 25 and 35 years old, who have no credential whatsoever beyond high school graduation. That is, they have no community college degree. They have no professionally usable certification, right? Because unlike countries like Switzerland, Denmark, Germany, to name but three, um, what's called CTE, career and technical education, has had such a bad rap in this country. For so long, it was the bottom track. It was woodworking. It was, you know, hairdressing. Um, dressed up with a more fancy title. Uh, And yet, when you do see the real thing, as I have seen, high schools with robotics and sophisticated computer labs and, you know, flight simulators, and uh, it, it is extraordinary what we can do when we put our mind to it, what we can offer to children, the relationships we can build with industry and commerce around articulated programs for high schoolers, it's just still for such a minority in terms of numbers of students. Yeah, yeah. We hear much about the achievement gap in education, which has proven quite stubborn in the last few decades, correct? Yes, absolutely. In fact, it's gotten wider on the last NAEP results. The poorest deciles and the wealthiest deciles in terms of their relative performance to each other, that gap has enlarged, has become greater. And and in the hot debates over that gap, do you do you offer any concrete prescriptions? Well, yes. I mean, uh, going back to my skepticism about some of our standards, particularly in ELA um, and social studies, in the humanities, in other words, um, for example, if you're a poor kid in an inner city public school, uh, you're liable to be drilled on skills like find the main idea. Uh, The result of that is you do worse and worse on ELA assessments. Well, Hmm. one might say, why is that? Uh, Aren't you being drilled on just the skills you need? Well, the answer is that when you are given a passage to interpret on an exam that you've never seen before, and by the way, that's what we do on most state tests, your ability to find the main idea has nothing to do with some purported skill. It's simply based on whether you understand the background information about Hmm. which the piece is talking. And if you're a more affluent student and your parents have been able to take you to museums abroad, give you background education, you're far more likely to recognize what the passage is about. So the less background knowledge we teach to our poorer kids, the worse they do on these tests. Hmm. So a knowledge-rich curriculum is certainly one one, one element. That's why I say enormous respect to Hirsch for pushing that point. Um, And he's absolutely right for the younger children. It's just in middle and high school, you know, it becomes a wasteland. I mean, I visit school after school where the head is on the desk and the eyes are closed uh, because, frankly, finding the main idea uh, for the 10th year in a row. Boring. You got it, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, reading literature by that age has to be about things that are deeply engaging, right? about the real fundamentals of the human condition. Uh, And teachers have to be encouraged to ask big questions about big texts. Um, You can find the main idea on the back of a cereal box. Yeah. I mean, Hamlet, what do you do when, I mean, you know, and this this is probably going to be difficult for some students. What do you do when you're, when you're terribly disillusioned with your mother? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's I mean, even though 
It's not about blame. It's not, but just sort of reflect, think about this, that, that, that experience. Well, I mean, at the deepest level, Mark, I would put it this way. We spend more time in, in our own company by far than with anyone else. Yeah. Right. When you're alone, particularly in times that are, are troubled, uh, are upsetting, which happens to all of us uh, a lot of the time, the furnishings of your mind are the company you keep. Right. What's mm -hmm. inside there is, of course, uh, often a product of experience, uh, the, the life you've happened to have led. But if you have been blessed by a rich education, by the company of ideas uh, and have memorized, because to learn by heart is not passive, it's very active. If you have inside you uh, the fruits of really of a wonderful education, they are a companion for life. They are, we know, for example, that for many, when they were shipped off to Siberia under the worst of Stalinism, the fact that they brought with them, you know, a wonderful Russian education in literature and poetry was a lifesaver. Hmm. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. I, I think a very powerful part of the book, uh, the real meat, comes in the sections where you examine what you call the great distractors. Let's run through those. What is the first distractor, quote, critical thinking? Isn't that precisely what we should aim at, Professor yeah, Steiner? It is if you listen to the rhetoric out there, right? I mean, it, it it's sort of like breathing right now. The assumption that you teach critical thinking in American education, I mean, you're nuts to question it, right? But as I have said recently on a, a little video I did for the book, uh, I ask you to start thinking critically for the next 30 seconds about nothing in particular. <laughs> right. And you rapidly realize that the reason we actually offer good salaries to airline pilots, surgeons, software engineers, is that they know a great deal of to be critical about. Right. right. They're not like propellers spinning out of water, driving a ship nowhere. They have an enormous body of specialized knowledge and information and experience. And that's why their critical thinking is worth something. It's like running before you can walk, right? Yeah. But, it, but it's, it's an excuse, and that's my real worry, along with a lot of other things I name, like metacognitive skills and grit and the rest of it and positive mindset. Mm -hmm. it is, it's become a reason not to teach the academic disciplines, not to teach um, the engagement with ideas. Hmm. You know, much easier to say, oh, let's think critically, right, than to, to actually convey in depth, the ambiguous, challenging, exciting knowledge that we've inherited and that we constantly add to uh, as a human species. Yeah. You mentioned a moment ago grit and, and mindset. Well, one of them is is the, the growth mindset or positive mindset and right. grit. Well, what, what is that distraction? Well, 
The distraction is to take common sense, very frankly, that has been known by teachers for at least 24 centuries, <laughs> um, which is that when students are, are discouraged by a poor result, for example, you don't say to them, well, you're bad at math, right? I think we knew this, uh, you know, in 400 BC. Um, but you say to them, look, uh, let me work with you. You've got to put in some more effort. Let's figure out what wasn't understood. Right? This is just called reasonably good teaching. But now we've dressed it up in a lot of lingo mm -hmm. that basically suggests that if you focus on the lingo and not the underlying effort and content, right, um, that, that you'll be fine. And in fact, the folks, the scholars who brought us things like grit, right, and positive mindset have been backpedaling, in some cases rather furiously, to say, well, well, well wait a minute. Hmm. I didn't actually mean this to be used in school accountability. You know, these are concepts to be thought about, to be interrogated. Um, this, you know, reminds me a little bit about John Dewey's distress when he actually you know, saw what was going on in schools uh, based on misreadings or quick readings of what he wrote. So it's not so much that it's bad, right? Because, you know, what it's saying is is reasonably good common sense. It's that it becomes a substitute, an end in itself. Yeah. My most, my most controversial pushback, and I know I'm going to get slaughtered for this, um, is on social and emotional learning. And I, well, I, I was going to bring up uh, yeah, SEL. My first, my first question was, well, why, why do educators love acronyms so much? Uh, that, that's, uh, I mean, because they can go to workshops that have those uh, acronyms as titles. Okay. But I want to take this on uh, with your audience. Look, let me be very clear. Um, even before COVID, but even more since, we have lots of evidence that there is widespread emotional and mental distress among many high school students, middle school, even elementary school students. Yeah. I'm not for a minute minimizing that. What I'm saying is there's research that says the best response to that is to have mental health professionals in the schools, people who are trained, right, to work with students on those issues. And in fact, there's British research that says when untrained teachers try to deal with their students' depression, they actually make it worse, more often than they make it better. So I'm not for a moment minimizing the problem. What I'm saying yeah. is, first of all, you know, it's, it's a very bad solution to add to everything we already ask teachers to do, to uh, make right. them the pseudo-mental health professionals. And the second thing I would say is that when we do translate it into things that teachers can helpfully do, we're once again back where I was a moment ago with good, sound, common sense about being supportive with your students, about being accessible, about building trust. This, this doesn't need, again, some pseudoscientific lingo uh, about, you know, SEL, social and emotional learning. This needs good humanity, common sense and caring. Your your analysis of these great distractors, uh, I think, is is very persuasive. And your appeal to common sense is as well. So, so David, what are some of the things that block the reforms that we need? 
Why, why, why is common well, sense not observed? Well, I think that because of these decades of disappointing outcomes, and let me say immediately that the school is the sort of endpoint of a series of social, political, economic decisions, right, that come home to, school, to, to roost at the schoolhouse door. There's no question that the best predictor of a student's academic outcome is the zip code. Right. Mm -hmm. It's naive to pretend that the school can always be the tail that wags, right, the the yeah. child's life experience, the, the, uh, the rest of it. So let, let's say that, first of all. But secondly, I think that we are disillusioned by our lack of progress. And it's only human to say, maybe we've been doing the wrong thing all along. Maybe we, we've got to stop it with this press on on you know, test outcomes and all the rest of it, maybe instead we should just be teaching the whole child, right? And be worrying about the whole child and um, stop with this focus, right? Now, to some extent, I'm sympathetic because our tests are terrible. I'm generalizing. Uh, we, there are a couple of great exceptions, some of which we've been honored to be part of, such as in Louisiana. But by and large, our multiple choice, short constructed response tests, they, they do this issue of uh, skill testing that we've talked about before. So they're not entirely wrong. Yeah. But my book is a plea to say, instead of turning away from poorly tested academics sustained by bad textbooks, let's actually remember what it's like to master an academic discipline, right? Truly master it in the hands of good teachers. That's where we need to go, not to these pseudoscientific, uh, as it were, proxies uh, for, for nothing in particular. Uh, and that's, I think, the deep battle that I'm trying to, to engage in. You've been you've been at this battle for for a while. When you were the dean of the School of Education at Hunter College, uh, which you did for for a few years, what did you do with teacher training there? Well, how do you change it? There, yeah, there there are two things above all else, and they sound like they're they're very different ends of the spectrum, but they actually go together. The first is you have to ensure that teachers deeply know their subject. This wouldn't be news to many of our peer countries. But for example, at Teachers College Columbia, which is in many ways the flagship, right, of schools of education has been for a long time, the content instruction is not done at Columbia University, as you well know. Um, it is done by professors of education. That's why they call 125th Street the widest street in the world. Um, it, 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 that, and that's very telling, right, that, that academic scholarship is not appropriate for teachers, right? Um, so that's the first thing. And at the other end of the spectrum, we shortchange our future teachers in terms of clinical experience, right? What they need is the opportunity to translate that academic knowledge into effective teaching. And that means more than a few weeks dumped in front of some overworked mentor teacher and mm. underpaid adjunct professor from the ed school, probably speaking two different languages, since we don't norm the two of them together, and mm. utterly confusing the poor teacher candidate in the process. We need at least full year clinical residencies supervised by trained professionals, which, by the way, is standard practice in many of the top performing nations in the world. You've said to me in the past that 
the the medical model is is worth following here yes. with the the yes. residency not, the 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 in, that's you know. right we are about 110 years behind in um it was actually my university johns hopkins that led the revolution here because of a lot of german professors who came over uh to teach here uh, we used to teach surgery through textbooks only and then we gradually realized that you actually had to have deep practice, uh, you know, and you had to be mentored by those who had really mastered that practice. Right. And so we shifted to a residency model um, in about 1910. Well, here we are in, in 2020s and we're still teaching teaching the way they taught medicine over a century ago. This is a national embarrassment. Uh, last question. David, as, as the book comes out, do you think that the openness to the critique and the reforms that you propose is greater now than it was 10 years ago, five years That's, ago even? Yeah, great question. I wish I had a, a simple answer to that. I think there's going to be, if the book achieves some attention, um, sometimes one hopes for that, sometimes one doesn't. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of pushback uh, at multiple places, right? For some, the section on social and emotional will be intolerable. For others, uh, the attack on the common core standards. Uh, and for some, the insistence that ethics, for example, is crucially important as part of education will, will strike them as Victorian. Um, and so no shortage of hostages to fortune in this book. But I hope at least that in critiquing it, pushing back on it, the question will be raised. The question of the core value of an education will be raised. And if that's the result, I'll be more than happy. The book is A Nation at Thought, Restoring Wisdom in America's Schools. Professor Steiner, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you to all who are listening. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.